Yesterday afternoon after the service, my family and I were sitting around the Christmas tree and kind of reminiscing about the week that has passed, or not the week, the year that has passed. And uh, Clara, our daughter Clara, got out her family journal that she writes down kind of things that happen in our family. And she read the entry from last year, uh, New Year's Eve. We had forgotten, but we were in California last year on a big family trip. And on that particular day, last year, we toured the Warner Brothers uh, studio. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's massive. It's a, this huge complex where, where they make the movies and the TV shows. And so they give you this tour um, where you get to go and what, basically you drive past a lot of things that you don't stop at. And every now and then you stop and they'll give you a little tour of like a sound stage and this is where they made this show and you get to see it. But what you realize is that you're just seeing a, like a tiny little representation of a big, massive production uh, where they do all kinds of things. And so even though we spent a whole day there, we really just saw a small, small part. But we saw enough to get a sense of, oh, this is where the magic happens. This is how they make the magic. So as I uh, remembered, as Clara read it, and I remembered what that day was like, I realized, well, that's kind of what I'm trying to do tomorrow, yesterday and today in these sermons, right? Like the Bible is a big, massive book with loads going on, and we're driving past an awful lot of things and not stopping. <laughs> but um, we're hitting a few highlights, uh, a few representative highlights, so that we can see, oh, this is where the magic happens, <laughs> right here. Now we see how, how, how it gets done, how he does it. And so we're, we're, we're getting a flyover and seeing a, just a few details to give us some sense of the beautiful big whole. And then this coming year, uh, we're going we're gonna to pay a little more attention as we travel through the whole Bible and see um, different events that happen in the course of Scripture. So that's the plan. I mentioned that yesterday. After the service, a number of people said to me, um, four chapters every single day feels like a lot. I, I'm probably only going to read, read one realistically, which is great. That's awesome. If you read one chapter of the Bible a day, wh what, what a great year you'll have. But, but the people wanted to know, a number of people asked me, okay, but which one should I read? I want to read the one that you're going to preach on. So which one? You've got to tip us off a week ahead of time. So I, th <laughs> I thought about that as a good suggestion. So this is what I'll do this year. Is it, Lord willing... <laughs> It's always, good to, it's always good to say that before you say anything. Lord willing, I'm going to try to be a week ahead so that I can tell you, okay, next week I'm going to be preaching on this section of the Bible. So if you're the kind of person that wants to read ahead, you'll know at least which section of the Bible they're reading. So today I'm preaching on the New Testament, but next week Sunday, um, follow the line of reading that takes you through the book of Acts if you want to be ready for the sermon next week, because I'm going to be preaching. So we'll, we'll read Acts chapters 1 to 6, if you read one each day, and I'll preach on one of those chapters next week Sunday. That's the plan. Okay. So yesterday we talked about the Old Testament. One way to read it and make sense of it is that it's full of a lot of promises that God made. The big one, that promise that God made in the Old Testament is that the Messiah is coming. Right? He, didn't say, he didn't say that lots, but he said it enough um, that there was this anticipation that one day God is going to send the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. There is also a paradox that was introduced in the Old Testament. That it's that passage in Exodus 34 where God says he, 
for our sins, to pay for our sins on the cross. He rose again, defeating death. The church is his body on earth. He is our head and we are his body. He really is the central figure of the whole Bible. And so the New Testament tells the story of when God came to earth and lived amongst us. And it leads with four different portraits of Jesus. Four complementary pictures, right? They don't, con they don't conflict in, 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 in any way, right? They're complementary. They're telling the same story about the same person, but they tell it from different angles, from different perspectives, right? So that we can get a more comprehensive portrait of what Jesus is really like. It's sort of like if you go to a photo shoot, right? Never in history has someone or a family gone to a photo shoot and the photographer just takes one picture and says, we're done. That would be great if it worked that way. <laughs> I would like that. But um, it doesn't work that way. The photographer takes loads of pictures, right? Stand by this tree, stand on this bridge, stand by this tree, and, and, and this angle, and now this person kneeling, and now this person with their hand, right? You know how it goes. And what they're trying to do is to get different perspectives, right? So they can show a more fulsome portrait of this is what the family actually is like. This is what they look like when they clean themselves up. That's the idea. And so in the Bible, we get these different angles on the same person, different perspectives, different photos, if you will, of the same person. And we put them together. They don't conflict. Like I said, they're all complementary, but they give us a more robust understanding of who Jesus was and what he was like. And so the Bible leads with Matthew, right? Most scholars agree that Matthew was probably written for a Jewish audience, right? When you write something, you have your audience in mind. As far as we can tell, Matthew was picturing a Jewish audience, right? Because Matthew, the way he tells the story, he focuses on the ways that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, right? That's one angle on the Jesus story, is how he fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies. Now, if you're writing to a Jewish audience, that Jewish audience is going to know about these prophecies. It will make sense to them to see that, oh, here's the Messiah. He fulfilled those things. So that's Matthew. Then you move on to Mark. Now, a this is speculation, but a lot of scholars think that Mark was actually writing down the reflections of the Apostle Peter, that this is the Apostle Peter's story, the Apostle Peter's experience of the life of discipleship. He told it to Mark, and Mark wrote it down. There's some clues within the book itself that causes a lot of the theologians to make that conclusion. It is speculative. We don't know for sure. But throughout the history of the church, a lot of people have thought that. What we know for sure, this is not speculative, is the way that Mark writes, he's a different type of author than Matthew was. And when Mark writes, he puts you right in the action. The, the Gospel of Mark is written with mostly present tense verbs. So when you read it, it feels like it's happening right before your eyes. You feel like you're right in the action. It feels very different than reading um, the book of Matthew. Mark often uses the word immediately. You see that when you read an English translation immediately. He's putting you right there uh, in the action. Mark is possibly, probably the oldest gospel that we have. Uh, then going on from Mark, you have Luke. Luke is often referred to as the gospel to the Gentiles, right? Matthew was probably written for a Jewish audience. Luke was probably written for a non-Jewish audience. Luke himself, we think, was a Gentile, was a physician, 
And throughout the Gospel of Luke, what you see emphasizes that, yes, Jesus is Jewish and came for the Jewish people, but he also came for all the nations. And Luke tends to emphasize Jesus came for all of us. Jesus came for, for all the nations, not just for the Jewish people. And then you have John. John reads differently than the other three. Um, John is a big picture thinker. John goes big right from the, right from the start, right? John's, John's intro parallels the intro of the whole Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and by Him were all things made, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's John, right? Big picture, going all the way back to creation, referring to Jesus. Jesus was there, right? And this is all the story that God is telling, and Jesus has been part of it from the beginning. That's John's way of telling this story, and over and over again throughout the story, John emphasized that Jesus is God. Jesus is fully 100% God. And so we have these four authors, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, but, but that channeled through their own writing style and personality, and we have these four different pictures of Jesus. And that gives us a composite that's more full than if we just had one. So taken together, Here's what we have. We have God Almighty who took on flesh, who was born in Bethlehem in the fulfillment of a number of prophecies. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly revealed what God the Father is like. He died on the cross as a perfect substitutionary atonement to pay for our sins and rose again from the dead. He promised that whoever believes in Him, whoever puts their faith in Him, shall not die, but have their sins forgiven and have eternal Life And he also promised that one day he would return and finish the mission that he began. And he would abolish evil forever. And he would establish a new heavens and a new earth where God will be with his people and reign forever. That is the portrait of Jesus in the New Testament. Okay, we'll move on. Uh, the portrait of the church, the church in the New Testament. Jesus didn't just come for himself, right? He came for us. He came to redeem for himself a people. Right? In his own words, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? So that he could claim for himself a bride. A bride washed clean of her sin. A bride that is beautiful. A bride that's been reconciled to God in a healthy covenant relationship. A relationship that will never be broken, but will extend into eternity. In the book of Acts, Acts was also written by Luke, the same guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke. We, 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 Luke tells the story of the formation and the spread of the New Testament church. Right? Jesus, in the beginning of Acts, Jesus promises his followers that they will be his witnesses. He, he's beginning to tell them how the history of the church is going to unfold. Right? He says, look, I've got this plan and it involves a particular message, and that message is going to need to go out. People are going to need to hear it. And according to my plan, you're going to be the ones who proclaim this message. You're going to be my witnesses. We'll begin in Jerusalem, where we are. We'll spread out to Judea and Samaria, and eventually this message is going to make it to the ends of the earth. Right? That's a, that's a spoiler. That's a little preview that Jesus is giving at the start. Right? Guess where this message is going? All the way to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. That is my plan. And after that, of course, 
they're not able to do that plan in their own strength, right? That, this needs to be of the Lord and by the Spirit. And so sure enough, in the next chapter of Acts, the Holy Spirit of God descends upon the people of God. And we hear the first Christian sermon is preached by Peter, where Peter goes out of his way to explicitly make the point that Jesus Christ, the Son of David, is the Messiah. And a number of people heard that message and believed it, received it, and the church expanded. We continue to read, as you read the, the story of the history of the church in Acts, you read about the extraordinary church planting efforts of the Apostle Paul. You read how churches are starting to spring up throughout the Roman Empire and how Gentiles as well as Jews are all coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You read about miracles that are affirming the truth of the message they're proclaiming. You also start to read about persecution where the church is starting to be persecuted by the Roman Empire. By the end of Acts, we have Paul in prison. He's still preaching the message of the gospel and he is writing letters to the churches that he has planted under house arrest. Then after the book of Acts, as you're reading through the New Testament, you have the Gospels and you have the Acts, and then after that you get, a, you, basically we start reading other people's mail. You get a number of letters that are in a row, letters that are written to the early churches, written by Paul and Peter and James and John and whoever wrote Hebrews. And those letters are, when you read them, they read like letters. They are relational documents. They speak of a relational love between the authors and the recipients, just like letters do. They also contain loads of theology and guidance regarding, in these letters, they explain what it is that Christians believe. And it, it explains how Christians should live. And it explains how Christians should interact with one another within the church. And it also explains how the church should interact with the greater culture. And some of these letters even give indications of what we should expect in the future. In 1 Corinthians, for example, we learn that the individual members of the church all combine together to make one thing, one body, one united body of Christ. But that each individual member has been given a particular spiritual gift in order to bless and to build up the body. What we're told in 1 Corinthians is that every single member of the church, no matter what, no matter what their gift is, is special and is important and is vital to the health of the whole. Every single individual member. And then in Ephesians, we learn that the blessing of marriage is actually... A metaphor. Marriage between a, a husband and a wife is a metaphor. It's a living, breathing picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. That's Ephesians 5. And in Timothy and Titus, we're, we're given biblical qualifications for anyone who holds the office of elder and deacon. You can look up in Timothy and Titus. This is what that person's character needs to be like, right? All of that is in these letters. You get the idea. The New Testament is a whole library of books that explain how the church started, what the church believes, how the church is organized, how Christians are supposed to behave during their pilgrimage on earth as they make their way to heaven, and it explains some of what's going to happen in the future when Christ returns. And you learn all that stuff as you read through the letters of the New Testament. And then here's a passage right towards the end of the New Testament. We'll get, we'll get to this towards the end of the year this year. It says this, Then I heard what's, 
what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. That's part of our story, too. That's a part of the story that hasn't taken place yet, but we believe by faith that it will. Our relationship to Jesus is going to culminate in a marriage feast, and then we will be with him forever in the ultimate marriage. The ultimate marriage to which all the earthly marriages were simply pointing forward to. All right, the final... The final thing that we need to consider here, we've thought about Christ, we've thought about His church, we're just closed by thinking about all of creation. Right? The passage we started with will be the one that we end on, Romans 8. Romans 8 is a passage that's full of hope, but it's also realistic about the state of things right now. The, in Romans 8, it very clearly explains that the world is broken right now. It's not, it's not been fixed, it's not been made well yet. And creation itself feels this and knows this, knows that this is not what it was ultimately made for, right? We, we read in this passage that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And, obtain, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So in, at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, we get a little glimpse, we get a little hint of what the universe was like before the fall, when everything was still as it should be, everything was good. But, but so quickly, things fall apart. Because of sin, which introduces decay and destruction and death into this good world that God created. And the way that the story is told, it's clear that Satan, Satan's at fault for deceiving and for tempting. Adam and Eve are at fault for giving in to temptation, breaking God's law. But creation is not to blame. Creation didn't do anything wrong. And yet the repercussions for our rebellion impact the whole of creation such that we're told in Romans 8 that creation is, is unsettled. Creation, Paul uses these, these participles of longing, groaning, right? Do you know what it feels to long and to, to, to groan? You don't feel right. You don't feel settled. If you're wishing for something, if you're longing for something, if, it's, if you want it so bad you're groaning for something, it doesn't feel right. You don't you don't feel settled. Paul is saying that's how creation feels right now all the time. Not right. Not settled. Longing. Groaning. And then you get all the way to the end of this story, right? Not the, not the part we're in now, but you get a little peek ahead at the end of the Bible to what it will be like. And what you realize at the end of the Bible that sense of groaning, longing, that unsettled feeling is gone. 
It's been replaced. You know what it's been replaced with? Shalom. Peace, peace is finally returned to God's creation by the end of the book. It starts there in chapters 1 and 2, then it's gone for a really, really long time, and then at the very end, shalom is reintroduced. And we read this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is a promise that one day we will once again be with God in the garden. All the sin in the whole world could not spoil God's plan to be with his people in his place. Sin may have caused a significant detour. Sin may have caused a whole lot of pain and suffering that could have been avoided. But ultimately, no amount of sin or anything else will ever be able to wreck God's good plan for us. And so the final, the very last chapter of the Bible says this. And then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And of course, that's beautiful. That's not the end. That's just the beginning. All of history was leading up to that point. And basically, all of this long history that we're, that we're living through and that the Bible describes, that basically that's just going to become the title page and the preface to the adventures that await us once Christ has returned and is seated on his throne in the new heavens and the new earth. So yesterday we looked at the Old Testament. We looked at some promises that God made. This morning we looked at the New Testament. We see how God keeps some of those promises. And then for the entirety of this year, we're going to explore this book that God wrote, discover some of the details that weave the different plot lines together to see how it all fits together to tell the one story about the glory of God and the redemption of his people. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this story that you're telling. We thank you that it's true and that it's good. We recognize there's some hard things in it, some, some painful things, some sad things. We recognize that that's the result of, of sin and rebellion. But we thank you that, that it's not a tragedy. It's not a sad story, ultimately. It's a wonderful, joyful, and glorious story. It's a story about your glory, your power, your love for us. And it's a story about our relationship with you, how you created us and redeemed us and called us to yourself and formed us into your people, your bride. And we thank you for this story and that you've included us in it. And we pray that you would draw near to us as we seek to draw near to you. In Christ's name, amen. Take the worship team back up.